doing all right uh, this morning. Uh, we are going to be finishing up our series today. Um, we've been going through a, a book on eschatology uh, by Kenneth Gentry, uh, He Shall Have Dominion. We've been going through this book. We're actually finishing that up uh, today. So this will be the last uh, in that series that we've been going through uh, the different distinctives of uh, post-millennialism and what that looks like, um, and we've been looking at others as well, but comparing and contrasting those views. Uh, today will be the last in that series, and we will be talking about uh, particular objections that many have made to uh, the post-millennial claim. Uh, we'll talk about uh, what some of those, the responses may be from uh, the post-millennial uh, camp as far as those objections are concerned. Uh, but before we get started, let us go before our Lord in a time of prayer this morning. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful that you um, have given us the space that we might uh, meet together. You've given us uh, this time that we might uh, we might uh, learn the things of you, learn about the things that are sedated in your word. And I pray that we'd be faithful uh, to your word. We continually uh, go out, uh, march forward, do that which you have told us to do out of a grateful and thankful heart, knowing that our salvation uh, does not come by anything that we have done, but has come only through the work and person of your dear son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray. Uh, that you would prepare our hearts this morning, that we might worship you in truth and in spirit. Um, and we are so thankful for this time, this day that you have set aside, put distractions out of our mind, that we might focus upon you. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. All right, so we have been going through uh, this book, going through the different biblical theological aspects, um, the themes that we see throughout the Old and the New Testament that point uh, toward uh, a hopeful nature, looking forward toward that time when Christ comes and has victory. Uh, we have also been looking at some of the more systematic theological aspects um, of eschatology, uh, asking questions about timing, when is Christ returning, asking questions about uh, the different characters um, of the apocalypse as far as who is the Antichrist, who is the beast talked about in Revelation. Uh, and now we are finally getting to that portion of uh, Gentry's book where he begins to deal with some of the objections. And so I'll read uh, some of these objections. I'm not going to go through all of them. This is three chapters worth, and each chapter um, is quite substantial. So if we were to really hit every single kind of aspect of each chapter, it would be over 100 pages worth. Uh, so I'm going to kind of consolidate it down uh, to some of the ones that I thought are, are more uh, salient, and then we will uh, kind of walk through some of these. Well, the first uh, objection, and we have spoken about this in a few of the series before, the first objection that many levy is historical decline disproves post-millennialism. Post historical decline disproves post-millennialism. And I'll read a few quotes um, that show uh, where some people may be coming from in this. Uh, Paul Enns, a popular scholar, said, that World Wars One and Two militated against the optimism of this doctrine. John Walvoord said, This view has largely been discarded in the 20th century because many anti-Christian movements have prospered and the world has not progressed spiritually. Jay Adams said, The advent of two world wars virtually rang the death knell upon conservative postmillennialism as well. It is spurned as highly unrealistic because it predicts a golden age around the corner in a day in which the world nervously anticipates momentary destruction by nuclear 
warfare. And finally, how Lindsay, in his popular book, said, there used to be a group called post-millennialists. World War I greatly disheartened this group, and World War II virtually wiped out this viewpoint. No self-respecting scholar who looks at the world conditions and the accelerating decline of Christian influence today is a post-millennialist. Now, is all this true? If these are these sound like some pretty strong counters to the post-millennial argument, which is arguing that things are getting better, even if they're not getting better in a straight line, at the very least, if we look at all of the curves down the graph, there is an upward trend. That's the post-mill claim. So if this is what they're saying, if we look at history, it seems to be indicating that that's not true, then how can we how can we say that post-mill is a valid line of thought? Well, one argument, one of the first arguments uh, that Gentry makes is that, indeed, actually, I, he doesn't know that we can actually argue that there is historical decline. If you take, if you take a step back, morning, y'all, if you take a step back and you look at history not just from the perspective of the 20th century, um, then it's quite easy to argue, actually, that there is quite a bit of historical incline. Um, if we look at the state of Christianity, right whenever it started, there were about 12 people who adhered to said religion, and now there are uh, millions upon millions all throughout the world who are part of God's church. We look at Christians influ Christianity's influence not only in America, but we look at it throughout Africa, throughout Asia. We see that it's actually... Um, on a steady incline in many places, many places where you would expect it not to be on the incline. Um, and so we do see that there's actually great argument for a historical, or against a historical decline. Uh, things have gotten marginally better, one could argue, if you take that step back. Another uh, buff to this counter would be that we are not in the business of doing what he calls, or what many have called, a newspaper exegesis. Just because we see, uh, especially when these many of these quotes were put forward, many of these quotes are right in the aftermath of the first two world wars. Um, many of these were during the Cold War. Um, and if all that is true, uh, we could see where they might look at the newspaper, see the Cuban Missile Crisis or something like that, and say, oh, well, everything is uh, absolutely terrible. How can we believe that there's going to be a historical incline um, and things are getting better. Um, but we don't do newspaper exegesis. What do I mean by that? We don't look at a headline and say, well, that means that this must be my theological position. Where do we go for our theological positions? Where do we go uh, to know what to believe? What is the absolute standard of our truth? Well, that absolute standard is the scriptures. The scriptures are what gives us our truth. And whenever we are asking the question, what should our eschatology be? How ought we to view the end times? We should go to the scriptures. In the same way, it would be quite weak of our side, of the, the post-mill side, to say that because there's a newspaper article that says things are doing so well, therefore everyone should be post-mill, right? No, we should use the scriptures as our standard, and we should, uh, we should believe that which God reveals to us in his word. One of the other arguments against is postmillennialism. No, postmillennialism undermines watchfulness. 
postmillennialism undermines watchfulness. Richard Gaffin put it this way. He said, postmillennialism deprives the church of the imminent expectation of Christ's return and so undermines the quality of watchfulness that is incumbent of the church. Uh, and he specifically is looking here at Matthew 24. Could someone read for us this morning? We could pull our Bibles out this morning. And someone could read for us Matthew 24, verses 36 to 42. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 42. That one, that last verse there is to what I think Gaffin and many others are honing in on. Stay awake. Now, it's interesting that that translation uses the word stay awake uh, because that's actually what that word is more getting at. Not just being watchful. Are we as Christians to not engage in doing anything uh, as far as the kingdom work is concerned and just have our necks craned up at the sky just waiting on Christ to return? Uh, no Christian would, would say that entirely, right? Obviously, we need to be about the work of the church, about doing the work of the kingdom. Um, and that means that watchfulness is not just about looking at the sky and waiting for Christ to come back uh, today or tomorrow. He may come back. We don't know when he is because even in that verse prior, it says we do not know the day nor the hour. And yet it is not uh, it is not deprived the church of her watchfulness to be about the work of expanding the kingdom. Uh, and Gentry makes this argument just because uh, it says that we are to be awake. What does that mean? We ought to not then uh, be rest on our haunches. That, that is, we should not just uh, continue about life pretending that uh, because, well, maybe Christ won't come for another hundred years, another thousand years. Well, then it's the work's not up to me. I ought to, not to be uh, doing good work. I not, I ought not be striving toward uh, holiness. Uh, in godliness as God has commanded us in the scriptures. Um, and I'm just going to wait until the last second. I'm going to wait till it seems more imminent. Uh, and that's a, that is what uh, Christ is arguing against here as he says that we ought to be awake. We ought to be vigilant. We ought to be doing the work that has been put down uh, for us to do as Christians. And therefore, uh, we ought not, uh, we ought to be vigilant. Of course, this really comes to a head. In a great quote from the famous theologian from the 4th century, John Chrysostom, who says this. He says, is not the consummation of the world for each of us the end of his own life? Why are you concerned and worried about the common end? This is quite a sobering statement for us. For if there is a reason for us to be vigilant, if there is a reason for us to continue doing that good work and to strive toward holiness and godliness, 
to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. It is not just that Christ may return tomorrow. It is that we may die tomorrow. That the Lord may require our life of us tomorrow. And as that parable that Christ shared uh, with his disciples and many listening, that there was a man who had many storehouses of barns, right? And he stored up all this wealth for himself. And yet, what did the Lord say? The Lord said, today I have required your soul of you. And all of that wealth for himself was for nothing. Uh, the vigilance that we have uh, is inspired uh, not just by the fact that Christ may return tomorrow, but it is inspired by the fact that we have limited lives, and the Lord gives us that. He blesses us with it, and he tells us, be fruitful. Use those talents, use those gifts which I have given you, and be vigilant. Do not be lazy, as it were, um, and do that work which is required of all Christian men and women. Another, another uh, counter argument is that, and he kind of deals with these three back to back to back. He says, uh, some people say that postmillennialism is rooted in evolutionary thought. That postmillennialism is rooted in evolutionary thought. Now, that uh, he says that really where this comes from is a guilt by almost a very very vague association. Um, it is along this line of thinking. Evolutionary thought believes that things get better. That is, we can see in evolution, according to the evolutionists, uh, that simpler life forms, we get less simple, we get more, more complicated life forms. And so, too, the post-millennial looks at history and sees things getting better and better, and therefore these two things are connected. Um, now... This argument, I think, A, we, we are most post-millennials. I've never met a post-millennial who has been a Darwinist in their line of thinking. Um, these two things are really inherently contradictory uh, in their line of thought. Uh, Gentry brings up the fact that, uh, actually, if you look at uh, the Schofield Bible, of course, the most, one of those famous dispensational uh, uh, works of the last couple centuries, uh, Schofield actually... Uh, in his footnotes on the Genesis account, I was a very big fan of the gap theory. Um, so as to show that the world is actually millions of years old because of different gaps between the days. Uh, so that that way it could line up nicely uh, with the different uh, ideas as far as Darwinism was concerned in that day. Uh, this is from the dispensational side. This is not uh, a post-millennial thought. Uh, of course, one of the most famous all-mills of the 20th century uh, Meredith Klein uh, popularized the framework theory of Genesis 1, uh, actually saying uh, in the beginning that it fits better with what we know from natural revelation. Uh, this is from the all-mill side. Uh, so I would argue that uh, post-millennialism is not uh, capitulating to evolutionary thought just because these two things, we see two things that look similar uh, when on a, a further approach, uh, we can see that post-millennialism is not uh, evolutionary at all. It's actually very supernaturalistic. Darwinism uh, insists upon a humanistic understanding. It insists on uh, a naturalistic explanation of how things came about. And uh, post-millennialism insists upon a supernaturalistic explanation. That is, what is described for us in scriptures. That God is behind everything in history from its creation, from its inception to its consummation when Christ indeed returns. So these two things cannot go together. In fact, 
many of the uh, great post, one of the uh, many of the post mills argue very vehemently against such evolutionary thought. Another is that postmillennialism tends toward liberalism. That it tends toward liberalism. This tends to be an argument coming from the dispensationalist side of things. Uh, John Walbert said postmillennialism lends itself toward liberalism with only very minor adjustments. What does he mean by that? He sees that liberalism doesn't take much of the Bible seriously or literally. But the dispensationalism does take much of the Bible literally as far as timing is concerned, as far as the ordering of events is concerned. And so he says, because post-mills do not read Revelation, do not read Daniel literally, therefore they are tending toward liberalism. But if post-mills thought about how we read the Bible, how we read Revelation, if that does not protect us against liberalism, does literalism protect the post-mills, or the pre-mills? And I would answer no. Literalism is also a way of reading the Bible that Mormons use as they approach particular passages that are very literal. Jehovah's Witnesses use literalism in particular passages. And so do so did the Pharisees that Christ was arguing with in his day. And yet we would not argue that pre-mill dispensationalism is Mormonism or is tending toward Mormonism or is tending toward Jehovah's Witnesses or is tending toward Pharisaism. Uh, just because there is a similarity here does not mean that these two things are alike. And so in the same way, if we were to ask, well, because postmillennialism doesn't treat in a exact literal prima facie fashion different passages of scripture that the pre-mills do, therefore they're tending towards liberalism because liberalism also spiritualizes the text and also doesn't take some passages of the text literally. Well, that is, uh, that's, you're, you're making an association where the, there where there is no correlation, because post mills obviously do not take that same approach. Post mills take, though they take some passages, not exactly literal in that sense. Of course, we've already approached the, the fact that no one takes every single passage on the face of it literally, if we were to use that term, right? Whenever Christ says, "I am the door," no one actually thinks that Christ is actually the door. Right? He's using that as a, a, a way of speaking that those who come uh, to the Father must come by him. He is the entrance to uh, communion with the Father. And then, of course, none of the people that we're arguing with in, these, in this book, uh, pre-mills, all-mills, post-mills, none of these are what we call Roman Catholics. And that means that none of them are actually thinking that when Christ says, this is my body and this is my blood, that it is literally the body of Christ, that it is literally the blood of Christ. So no one takes every passage uh, literally on the face of it. But post-mills, how do they differ from liberals in that they spiritualize the text? They differ in that they take the text seriously. They believe it is the inspired word of God. They believe that Christ came down to this earth, that Christ was the Son of God, that he lived a life for 33 years, that he died on the cross, and that he was raised on the third day. As Gentry points out, Liberals are arguing about whether or not Christ was here, let alone if he was actually God and was killed and was raised on the third day. And yet no self-respecting post-mill would argue that Christ did not raise from the dead and that he is not reigning now. 
Of course, he then reminds us of one of the most famous postmills from the 20th century, uh, Jake Russell Machen, who wrote the book Christianity and Liberalism and argued vehemently against liberalism and its spread throughout uh, the Presbyterian Church in the 1920s. And that brings us to the fifth relationship that is made here, that postmillennialism results in a social gospel. If postmillennialism, this is what Hal Lindsey says in his famous book. He said, God didn't send me to clean the fishbowl. He sent me to fish. This argument uh, really is along the lines that the social gospel, that is the idea that we should be more concerned with social concerns, and the gospel plays second fiddle um, as we go into, especially in missionary concerns, that we should be more about building the well, building the orphanage, uh, bringing people money and food and things that they need uh, instead of bringing them the gospel. That is the social gospel. That is the good news. is more social, more physical and temporal than it is spiritual. Is this what... It Did this come from post-millennialism? Gentry takes us a little bit back as he dives into the historical context and says, no, really, this came out of humanism. This came out of the ideas that were coming out of the Enlightenment thought um, that were spreading throughout Europe in the 17 and 1800s. But just because there is a... Uh, just because there is a connection here, the post-mills think that things can get better and that social gospel advocates believe that things can get better socially, does that mean these two things are the same? And, of course, no. Uh, while we have made the argument that post-millennialism uh, does not neglect the physical, um, and it, it, it pays attention to both the spiritual and the physical needs of people as it proclaims the gospel very strongly and unabashedly, the social gospel complete, almost entirely, if not entirely, neglects the spiritual lives of people and spiritual needs of people as it focuses only on those temporal aspects. And this is the key difference. The post-mill is still concerned with the true and uncompromising gospel that is presented to us in the scriptures, and that salvation comes by Christ alone, in faith alone, and that these, this is the message that the church must proclaim and has proclaimed for its entirety, and we must continue to do so as we go into uh, different uh, nations, as we go into mission work, as we mission work in even our own nation here in the U.S. This is vitally important. This, he goes on to say, how Lindsay goes on to say, excuse me, makes claims that how we should not be concerned with making things better because how can we hope to make things better? We can't make things better. Sin is ever present. And he even goes as far as to say that we reject much of scriptural as being literal and believe in the inherent goodness of man if we accept Post Mill's teaching. The inherent goodness of man. Well, it's quite a accusation to levy. If Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, R.L. Dabney, and J.H. Thornwell can number among the, among the ranks of post-millennials, and they, if you were to ask them if they believed in the inherent goodness of man, they would tell you no. They would give a resounding no. Uh, post-millennial thought uh, is 
uh, most popular amongst Reformed people, and Reformed are very well known for their doctrine of total depravity, that man is totally depraved. And so we are not neglecting the aspect of sin as far as things getting better. And I will uh, talk more about that in a rejection here uh, in a second about does sin undermine the hope of post-mill thought. But before then, we need to get to number six, which is that preterism is anti-Semitic. That preterism is anti-Semitic. Preterism, of course, that idea that Revelation uh, is, by and large, predicting the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. And what are we to say to such a claim that if God came and he judged uh, the nation of Israel at the time, that that would be anti-Semitic? Well, one, we should say that's, that the Christian doctrine as found in the scripture is most certainly not anti-Semitic as it proclaims the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to all sinners everywhere. The cross of Christ does not preclude any from that command. All are commanded to turn from their sins and to repent. And all those who do repent, all those who do turn from their sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ are indeed saved. As Christians, as even post-millennials, even preterists, even though we believe what we believe about Revelation, does this mean that we do not go and preach to the Jews? Of course not. We do. We preach to all those who are in front of us, uh, regardless of their race, and this is what we are commanded to do. This is not an anti-Semitic doctrine. This is actually the most loving doctrine that we can have to tell people to repent of their sins and to turn unto the only hope for their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this way of viewing Revelation um, is seems to be, as we talked about last week, consonant with the way that even the prophets spoke of. Were the prophets being anti-Semitic uh, for calling God's people out for their sin? Were the prophets being anti-Semitic for telling them that they would be exiled for their sins into Babylon? No, the, the way that God continually works throughout the Old Testament and then in the New is that he does punish and chastise his people. There is punishment for sin. There is love over and abounding mercy for many um, in spite of their sin, and this is consonant with the Old Testament, and this, if Revelation is indeed showing us God's judgment on the nation of Israel for uh, not only the persecution of his son, but the persecution of the church uh, for many years afterwards, uh, then this would be very much in line with the way that he speaks throughout the prophets, throughout the Old Testament. Um, and we are not uh, here saying then anything anti-Semitic. But then this brings us to sin undermines the post-mill hope. Just as how Lindsay said that it undermines that we are rejecting much of Scripture in the way that it speaks of sin. That we are thinking that there is inherent goodness in man. And yet how do we square as Reformed people post-millennial thought with the doctrine of total depravity? Well, one point that Gentry makes that I think is quite a strong one is that this question can be turned to the individual level. And that is, 
people could ask us and say, well, you believe in the doctrine of total depravity. How do you believe that an individual can be saved and that they can start sinning less and less over their lifetime and they can be sanctified and that they can be brought into an eternity within glory with God? You must not really take your doctrine of total depravity that seriously if you believe that a man can do such a thing because of his, in spite of his sin. And we would say, no, of course a man can be justified. Of course a man can be sanctified by the work and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. All we're saying as far as postmillennialism is concerned is that even though sin is still a reality, it will always be a reality until glory, is that just as Christ works on the believer and over time he is sanctified, so too... He's working upon the world by what means? By the means of his church. As the church goes out, as the church proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, many sons are brought to glory. And this seems impossible because with man it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. We are commanded to disciple the nations. Should we expect such a command to end in futility? We are told that Christ will put all his enemies under his feet, and that last one will be death. Do we expect that that will not occur? We believe very firmly that this can happen in spite of sin, because it's not us doing the work. It is Christ who is working, and the Spirit working by his people through his church, as he has promised to do. I will then go on to the last one, but perhaps the one that I'll spend the most time on, which is that Scripture presents a suffering church motif. That Scripture presents a suffering church motif, and if this is true, then post-millennial thoughts cannot be true. Herman Ritterboss says this on Matthew 10, 23. Jesus here is predicting persecution to the end, although they will have a refuge to flee to. And Richard Gaffin perhaps puts it the strongest. He says, over the inadvental period, that's a fancy way of saying during the church age, between the two advents, during that period, in its entirety, from the beginning to the end, a fundamental aspect of the church's existence is suffering with Christ. Nothing, the New Testament teaches, is more basic to its identity than that. G.K. Beale agrees when he says the exercise of rule in this kingdom begins and continues only as one faithfully endures tribulation. So is this true? Are we suffering? If that is the main theme, if Gaffin is correct that nothing is more basic to the church's identity than suffering with Christ, then how on earth? Could postmillennialism be true? How could we have hope? How do we look at things the way that we do? Well, let's turn to a few passages that Gaffin brings out. If someone could return to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 8. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 8. And read that for us.
I think you did, but that's all right. Very good. Actually, 10 kind of goes in with it as well. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Thank you. So does this mean, then, that these are just jars of clay that we are putting too much hope in the physical world and that Paul doesn't seem to be doing that here, that we are to be always suffering? Well, Gentry brings out, uh, I guess I should read what Gavin has to say on this. Gavin first says this, he says, Paul effectively distances himself from the view that the life of Jesus embodies a power-slash-victory principle that progressively ameliorates and reduces the suffering of the church. But when we read this in the broader context, why is Paul writing 2 Corinthians? Well, the context of this is that Paul is writing to a church in which there are many false teachers who have come along, many false teachers who are proclaiming Gospels that are not real gospels. They're proclaiming against the gospel of Christ. And Paul has to show that he is really an apostle. Why does he have to prove his credentials? Because what he is preaching is the true gospel. He does not want this church to be led astray by false teachers who are bringing them away from the true gospel. And so when we get to this portion Is this we that he is referring to, a we that's referring to everyone at large? Or does the context seem, if you read things in order, does it seem more that he's describing the apostles and what they have and are going through? That they are going through great suffering, great trial, and that though they are these, merely these jars of clay, Christ is being made manifest as he is using them to expand the kingdom and preach the gospel he is proving his credentials as an apostle saying these men what are they doing they're doing it for money they're doing it for show they're doing it for fame how do what is one way you know that what we're preaching is true that we preach it in spite of the fact that we are suffering and christ is using our sufferings that his gospel may go forward and he often does this does this mean it doesn't apply to us at all no of course not For indeed, there may come a time when, as we are preaching the gospel, we may be called to suffer, and that Christ, too, will use us in such a way as we preach the gospel and many listen and many hear and praise God for it. But does this mean that Paul is saying that we all must suffer in such a way as he if we want to be good Christians? Is our suffering here tied with our spiritual well-being? Well, this is Paul speaking... And what did Paul go through? He was chained, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, and eventually he was decapitated. Um, And is he saying that this is what the Christian must go through in order to be a Christian? And I would think that most of us here would say, no, we do not go through those particular kinds of suffering necessarily. But if we were called to, right? If we were called to, Christ indeed can give us the strength to endure said persecution. Let's turn to Philippians 3. If someone could read Philippians 3, verse 10. Philippians 3, verse 10. That 
Very good. Thank you. Kiafin says this on the passage. He says, Paul is saying the power of Christ's resurrection is realized in the sufferings of the believer. Sharing in Christ's sufferings is the way the church manifests his resurrection power. Again, as in 2 Corinthians, the locus of eschatological life is Christian suffering. Now, who knows the context of Philippians 3? Why did what is going on in Paul's life when he is writing Philippians? Where is he? I guess I should ask. Does anyone know? He's in prison. That's right. He is in prison, expecting that he is about to die. And as he is speaking here, we have to ask, is he giving then a prophetic passage that the church will not be really in communion with God unless she is suffering? Or is he saying that here I am, I am suffering, and that though I am suffering, I still have hope in Christ because even here, even now, Christ's resurrection power can be made manifest. That I am suffering, but I know I am sharing in my suffering with Christ. But all this consummates, I think, very nicely in the third passage that Gaffin brings up, which is Romans 8, verse 17. Romans 8, verse 17. Because it is here that we see that though these other passages seem to be speaking of Paul's biographical suffering, this one is referring to suffering as far as the Christian is concerned. If we could read Romans 8, 17. And as children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Very good. Now this one, for Gaffin, seems to be the nail in the coffin. Because if the others could be described as talking about Paul and his biography, as those seem to be in context speaking about something that Paul is going through, this one is very obviously universal. This one is very obviously, right, he's saying that Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Well, obviously, Paul's not saying that only the apostles can be glorified. This is something he's speaking of the entirety of the church. So what does he mean? Does that mean that we have to suffer in order to be glorified? Well, simple answer is yes, we must. But what is this suffering that he is speaking of here? Is this suffering he's speaking of the same suffering that Paul went through as being lashed? and being imprisoned, and being uh, taken away by the state and eventually killed uh, for his Christian belief. Must we go through that suffering? Must we, must we go through the suffering that the church went through for the first few hundred years under the Roman Empire? Well, what is Romans speaking of? Romans 6 and 7 is actually speaking of indwelling sin, of our struggle and our fight with indwelling sin. This is where he constantly goes back and forward and says, it is by grace you have been saved. Does this mean that we are without the law? By no means. We must follow the law. Does the law save us? By no means. Of course we are saved by faith and, and trust in Jesus Christ alone. He's going back and forth, showing us the power of faith and of salvation, but also railing against antinomianism because the power of Christ and of salvation also frees us from sin. And indeed, if and he goes on to show that he himself is doing the same struggling. As he says, I myself do what I do not want and want to do what I 
or do not want to do the things that I do. He is struggling with indwelling sin. The Apostle Paul is struggling with this indwelling sin. And then he says that we are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer. So what kind of suffering do you think he's referring to here? It is that suffering that all Christians must go through as we fight against the indwelling power of sin. And we do so by the power of the Spirit working through us. If that is true, then yes, indeed, and amen, all Christians must suffer. But is this referring to the church at large? Is this referring to the church and as far as external powers are concerned? Is this suffering talking about that the church, in order to be glorified with Christ, must be persecuted by the state wherein she is located? Not necessarily. No. As John Murray rightly puts it, the very famous theologian from Westminster Seminary in the early days, Christian suffering ought not be conceived of too narrowly. In the passage so far considered and elsewhere in the New Testament, suffering includes, but is more than, persecution and martyrdom. This plays into the way that that, uh, Dr. Strimple from Westminster also says says that Christians cannot expect anything other than oppression and persecution. And then Gentry asks question in return, as they too had a, a bit of a, a back and forth, um, a scholarly back and forth on this subject. Strimple asks the questions, is Dr. Strimple, has he been completely outcast in his society? Is he not able to get a job? Is he suffering so greatly? Has his time at Westminster not been so well? Is his retirement not exactly what he had hoped for? Is he being oppressed and persecuted? Because that's, as he states, what Christians can expect. That's the only thing they can expect. Well, of course, Trimple would say, no, actually I'm doing quite well. I'm enjoying my time here and I've had a great career. And if that's all the case, then even Trimple must concede that what is meant by oppression and persecution, even his quote, is not that the state is always coming after the church. It does at times. There is a war going on between the forces of darkness and the forces of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we should seek for state-sponsored persecution or that that is something that we always anticipate. A Christian indeed will be glorified not because of his uh, status as far as whether he was a martyr or whether he was persecuted by the Roman Empire or by communist regimes or by any state power that would go against the church. Many, many a Christian will live his life under a state that is friendly to Christianity and will die under that and will still be glorified and spend eternity in the arms of his Savior. But of course, this does not negate the fact that indeed states do go against the church at times. And if this is true, does this mean that postmillennialism is wrong? And I'll use the analogy that I've used several times and then bring us into our time of questions. Um, we can expect that there will be, because there still are, many powers, many institutional powers, many states that are working actively to suppress and to oppress the church. Does that mean that we are that we cannot have any hope? Well, the answer is no. 
because we are in this great state of Texas, and if you think back to the war for our independence some 150-so years ago, or I guess more than that now, there were two major battles. There was the Battle of the Alamo, perhaps the most, battle, the most famous battle of that revolution, and there was the Battle of San Jacinto. Battle of San Jacinto was a decisive victory, right? There really was no contest in that one. As our men rode across the fields, it was a great victory. Those men had great reason for hope and great reason to think that they had won the war, and indeed, in that day, they did, as Santa Ana was captured and the treaty was signed. But to the men standing on the parapets of the Alamo, did they have reason to hope that Texas would be its own independent nation? Of course not. They were surrounded. They were greatly outnumbered. There was less than 200 of them, and there were over 3,000 of Santa Ana's men. And yet, as many historians, even Mexican officers at the time noted, the Alamo was actually critical in the victory of Texas at large. Because of that victory, it was what is known as a Pyrrhic victory. Because the losses incurred by Santa Ana and his troops at the time was so costly that even though he won the battle, some say that on that day he had begun to lose the war. Why do I bring that up? Because so too, with this great war that the church has been fighting for 2,000 years, we have a great general. His name is Christ. He goes on before us. He gives us orders. We follow him. And sometimes we are fighting and we are fighting in a battle that we are losing. But does that mean that we should discount hope? No. In the same way that the men at the Alamo still took up their arms and said, I believe in this cause and I still have hope in its victory. So too, even if in our small sliver of history if things seem to be going bad, if it seems like we're losing this battle, we're still on the winning side. That is not proof but there is not an upward trajectory just because we're on one of the downhill slopes. The Lord uses his church in many ways that we cannot understand. And so we move forward, we are diligent, we are vigilant, and we still have great hope in the power and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, our general. That's where I will leave things for today, and I will open the floor to questions. Don't make, oh, Phil's not here. Where'd Phil go? I was about to say, don't make Phil ask a question. <laughs> That I don't know, because as many of you may or may not know, this is my last Sunday here. Um, what? <laughs> There's a, uh, a call that I'm taking up in Abilene to be their intern for a while, so I'm going to go up there and uh, uh, do that. So I regret to go, uh, or as Bilbo would say, I regret to say this is the end, um, but of course it is not really the end. I'll be back at times, but I'll definitely miss y'all, miss this church.
So there are absolutely no questions. Going one. I mean, Christ, did I just, just prove it all? I was that good? Were there no questions? What? Yes. <laughs> this has been eight weeks, nine weeks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of rushed. This is quite a big book. If I had more time, actually, I would have gone, gone a little slower. What? This book is He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth Gentry. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if there are no questions, then uh, we can pray and get going so we can spend some time in fellowship. Uh, Mr. Will O'Brien, can you pray for us? Again? Yeah. Father in heaven, we glorify you for your word. We thank you for Caleb um, coming and teaching this morning. We thank you for the cross, which is our banner of victory as we march on for you, our great king, our cornerstone, our general, our father, our friends. We love you, Lord. Thank you for keeping your church, for guiding us, for shepherding us, for protecting us. We know that there are, there are trials, there are difficulties, there are forces of evil, but we recognize now that we have faith in you. We ask that you, through the power of your spirit, strengthen the faith that you have so graciously given us, that we may be continuing to be faithful in our march for the gospel. We pray for this town. We pray that through the work of this church, by the power of your spirit, that many would come to salvation through your glorious work, that this place would more and more come under your dominion, that people would recognize you as king, as you truly are king of all that is within the earth. We thank you for today. We pray that the worship of your people will be glorified to your name. We just always pray in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Amen.